0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Kleeger, The Economist.
1: And I'm Peter Kondjayan, The Grower.
0: Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Thank you for joining us for part two of this article that Peter found from the Washington Post about supply chain disruptions and food inflation. Where we left off last time, we discussed the article, what inflation was, some places that we're seeing it. I tried to put into perspective how much food inflation has grown in the last few months, in the last year, and then over the last several decades to give some context of where we are. One of the final comments that Peter made or questions that he posed was how can small and medium-sized growers how can you adapt to this potentially high inflation time period and that is where I'd like to start today there's two pieces one I'd like to bring Peter in for the discussion on where farm operations are able to adjust to keep their costs down and two I would like to look at how this could be an advantage from a marketing perspective. Just so it's not me talking the whole time, let's start with keeping our costs down. And one of the first things that I thought of, Peter, was at one point when we discussed fixed costs, we talked about inventory. So I think that this would be a really good time that if you've overbought things, as the season is finishing up, go through and figure out what you have on hand. Now would be a really good time to be critical about what you have in inventory and what you need to keep that operation going. Because if it's transitory, we're gonna see this inflation for a small period and then it will fade again and then prices will return to what you're comfortable with. So does that resonate from a grower perspective, being mindful of what you have and what you really need to get going next year?
1: Yes, that's an excellent point, Michelle. I think a grower's mindset might run a little counter to what you're saying, and it might be a place where we should and can learn from someone with your perspective. So for instance, let's talk about growing mix. And a small grower might be buying it by either the bale bag or a pallet. A few of us will generate enough need to have a whole trailer load delivered but every now and then depending on crops grown it might be a trailer maybe a half trailer that that gets delivered so our mindset tends to be wherever we find our lowest price stock up with as much as we can because then we'll save money in the long run because we bought it cheaper and i think where we might fault that reasoning a little bit if we tie up all that money in the soil mix say this time of year in november or december prior to the the spring rush, we have less money for other things. And for instance, fuel costs are going to skyrocket this winter of 2022. So it might be wise to pay a longer dollar for something like soil mix and get it as you need it so that there's a little more cash on hand to pay the fuel bills. Is that kind of what you're getting at and asking?
0: Yes, So that is one thing that I'm thinking of. If you did buy that whole semi last year and you haven't used it, try to stretch out what you have. Now is sort of that time to prioritize. If you're concerned that heating costs are going to go up or fuel costs are going to go up, if you're concerned that transportation is more expensive and so getting the materials you need is going to be more expensive, using through what you have before looking to buy more. So can you wait? Instead of buying it now, maybe it just makes sense sense to buy it later in the growing season, when potentially a lot of these supply chain problems will have worked their way through. And then the other piece would be, what upgrades do you really need? What spare materials do you have, right? So we saw wood and metal prices skyrocket in the first part of this year. So you're probably not going to make any upgrades to your operation this winter that are using building supplies that are scarce because they're more expensive. So the first step is just that, being mindful of, of what you have and how much you need and putting some buffer in your budget.
1: I think I went through this the first episode on this topic, Michelle, where I'm living through exactly what we're discussing today. I purchased an energy curtain for my research greenhouse. The delays in shipping, the supply chain disruption, it's it's affected me firsthand. And just yesterday, the remaining sections of steel arrived. So now everything is here, but it's too late. I can't install it because I have research going on in the greenhouse. So I'm going to end up paying a long dollar on fuel, at least in the beginning of the season, maybe over the holidays when I'm between experiments, I'll get some of the install done. But that's been personal for me. And then coupled with the news reports of whether it's propane, natural gas, or heating oil to brace ourselves, because prices are going about to go up, that can be a backbreaker because as in the past, we've talked about labor being a major cost in in an agricultural operation. When we talk about greenhouses, the fuel is what most growers will point to first. So when we've gone through spikes in fuel in the past, sometimes it's enough. It's that last straw that can break a a back and someone's not able to continue in business. Michelle, there's there's one paragraph in this Washington Post article that really piqued my curiosity. It's a phrase that I haven't heard before. So I'm going to read a sentence or two, quote, the closures and reopenings of different industries coupled with the surges and lags in consumer purchasing during the pandemic have caused an accordion effect with lots of industries playing catch up, even if they see higher consumer demand, close quote. So I hadn't heard this phrase accordion effect, and I'd like you to walk us through it. For me, the only thing I can kind of relate that to is the little bit that I understand about traffic patterns and traffic jams. So each of us is driving in a car and wondering what the holdup is. There may have been an accident a half hour ago up the freeway. By the time we get there, the accident's gone and you know we're wondering why this slowed down, speed up, slow down. So I get it on traffic, but help me understand the accordion effect as it applies to these economic conditions?
0: I think that this is a great point to bring up here. I think that it ties in really well with your supply chain concerns and your heating and energy concerns. So the accordion effect is a. Eff- fairly new term for economics. I think that this was coined in this conversation. So I was not particularly familiar with it before the article, but since then I've seen it in a couple other places. And so basically this idea is that we shut down and that demand fell for all these products. And then, so there was no demand. And so people turned off their production and then suddenly everything reopened. So now there's this huge amount of demand. There's this really strong price signal. We want, stuff now and it takes the supply time to catch up so the supply especially in agriculture where you have to go through seasons takes a while to catch up and so then things aren't available the price goes up and so men maybe people demand less so it's it's this lag is the way I see it between everything stopped so people stop producing and then suddenly everything opened and people want to produce more And now it's creating, instead of necessarily demand dropping, it's the supply of everything needed to bring these products to market that is moving faster. And so there's this delay. That's part of what we're seeing with the energy. And that's part of why you can't get your curtain is suddenly everybody wants these items, but yet not all of the markets to create them are open. Ports aren't completely open. And so it's a struggle to move through the port. I don't know if I mentioned it last time, but with vegetable oil, there's not enough labor to harvest the palm oil because of restrictions related to COVID. So, we have this idea of a lot of people want things right now and they have money because we have a lot of savings from last year. And then, with the energy specifically, we have a lot of mines that are closed down in China. So, some are safety inspections and some are COVID related. And so, we don't have enough coal coming out, which means that there's not enough coal to power these factories, which means it's slower getting stuff out. And so, right now, we see a lot of people and a a lot of money chasing the same goods because there's a finite number which is causing inflation and so as some of these kinks work themselves out will prices stabilize energy prices comes from this lack of coal in China it comes from a shifting in the world to more greener fuel sources and we don't have enough supply and then a reduction of wind in northern Europe where they use wind as a lot of their renewable energy source and so So if those mines come back on, if the winter's not terribly cold, if there is investment in more energy and it comes online, do we suddenly have a surplus of energy and we see prices fall when we can't see that right now?
1: So as you're explaining this, and I'm thinking about an accordion and and the ebbs and flows, we've spent lots of time in past episodes talking about crop scheduling and challenges. We've also talked about shrinkage and waste in production. These things are so intimately woven together because once we start predicting and guessing and at this point start to guess and assume that an accordion we're going to hit it right so we're going to grow more over this winter that to me is a it's a 50 50 shot can as easily go astray as because I mean, don't ever count on predicting an economy. I see where it's harder for us as growers to try and deal with it. I'd say from my perspective now, looking back in hindsight over my career, I probably would have been better off to keep my production fairly stable and when demand was high benefit by being able to raise my prices and instead of trying to grow that much more and take the risk of dumping it when the prices were lower and demand was lower just grow enough so for me that's say a more conservative approach perhaps because I don't like overproducing and I might have fellow growers who come on and say nope I believe exactly the opposite Peter if if I can hit it once every five years that that extra profit will cover anything that I throw away. How do you feel about those comments?
0: I think that if you look at this from an investing perspective, that you and that other grower are just two different types of investors. So you would be someone that likes to invest every week or month into your retirement account. So we call it dollar cost averaging. So you put in $100 in your retirement account every week. And sometimes you're going to be buying the stocks or mutual funds at a high price. And sometimes you're buying them at a low price. And if you just keep doing the same thing every time and don't try to guess the peaks and valleys, we do find that over a longer period, 10 years or more, a lifetime, your approach has higher returns. We are terrible at predicting the tops of stock markets or the bottom of stock Stock markets or any market. And so that flower price, that produce price, is you trying to guess the top or the bottom. So that consistency, that cost averaging has been proven successful way to do it. And it's easy. You figure out the system. You do it over time. It's not a lot of mental investment. The alternative would be someone that wants to be a stock picker or a startup picker. And those are very high risk. And so you invest in 5, 10, 20 startup companies or not new stocks one of them hits it out of the park five of them do okay and the rest tank and you end up ahead and that takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of education or luck and it's risky So there are people that make a lot of money guessing and picking stocks if that is your style and if you're willing to take those really big wins with those really big losses. But for the average person, doing the same thing in and out regardless of the prices and not getting sucked in is a really good strategy.
1: I love how sometimes you and I can be on a wavelength without even signaling it to each other. You brought in investment as an analogy. And as you were describing the accordion effect, I'm thinking, well, isn't that why we diversify a stock portfolio so that we don't have the accordion? So yeah, thanks for bringing in the investment. I think all of us can relate nicely to that.
0: So we know that when there are disruptions or shocks, small businesses are more agile. And so they can change more. And so I'm kind of wondering where you see some of those places, if the cost of fuel is higher, or if the cost of transportation is higher. If we know that, right, and you are small and you are able to shift, how are some of those places that growers should be thinking about shifting, especially if they're moving into a planning phase? Is it really just buying in bulk or having lots of items from the same place? Is it switching? Are there crops that are lower energy? Is it avoiding maybe poinsettias this year? One of the advantages of being small is the ability to make changes quickly and so how do growers right now lean into these prices are higher we don't know if they're gonna stay high or if they're gonna fall but given this information how can i change to take advantage of the situation or use it to my advantage instead of being forced to keep going i don't have long contracts whatever i have some flexibility
1: great question we're finding that during the pandemic and this coming out of the pandemic, these the economic challenges we're facing, it's kind of ratcheting up the, the pressure a little bit. The way I'm going to answer your question is these are ongoing adjustments that I'm about to cite, and I'm going to divide it into fixed and variable costs, Michelle. So let me do fixed first, and I'm going to use a greenhouse environment as the example. Let's talk about What can we do to cut costs in the greenhouse in terms of structure and environment control? And then we'll come back in a few minutes and I'll talk about some options growers have when energy prices spike, those uh, tactics that can be used. Let's ride on this uh, energy curtain for uh, reducing heat costs and bring in the other side of environment control, the cooling side of a greenhouse. So we're in an era where We're moving away from mechanical ventilation with energy, electric fans pulling air through a greenhouse. So most of our greenhouses and construction now is earmarked for natural ventilation with side and end vents and roof ridge vents. So we have that natural air movement through the greenhouse. And a 30 by 100 foot greenhouse is a pretty standard sized greenhouse for most growers and small farmers. If he or she is still cooling and ventilating with big electric fans at one end and vents at the other, Then let's look at retrofitting the greenhouse. I've actually had experience changing over one of our 30 by 150 foot greenhouses 20 years ago and retrofitted it with side and ridge vent to eliminate the energy of using the exhaust fans. With the energy curtains, they also double as shade curtains during the summer. So the technology has advanced to the point where one curtain can serve two roles, two functions. And then in terms of other infrastructure or or environment control, in, in terms of watering and irrigation, Michelle, that's one of the big inputs of labor is for people to learn how to water greenhouse crops. So when the labor costs Increase when we can't find enough good labor. Those are periods when a grower should consider more irrigation system installation. So in a greenhouse, drip irrigation pays for itself the first time you use it, in my opinion. And not only does it save labor and time, but the technology in our irrigation systems today deliver more uniform watering than we can supply by hand watering unless a grower has 20 benches, and each bench has a different crop on it, which would require a separate solenoid and zone of irrigation for each bench. That sometimes can get to be more pricey than watering by hand, but in most cases, we have multiple benches of a given crop. So we might have that 30 by 100 foot greenhouse and it have eight or 10 zones of irrigation in there, and we'll do better off. The crop quality will improve compared to hand watering. So I'm gonna stop there, those are a few examples of the fixed costs
0: Two thoughts. One, you have a lot of benches. That might be a place that you consider that in the next season, you just have less complexity so that you could install this system. And then before we started talking, one of the things that I thought of that I think might be an opportunity for field growers is you had mentioned when you came to my garden, making sure to plant things and have those cover crops and strengthen the soil. And so smaller growers that are diversified, if If you are using cover crops or trying to improve your soil through rotation and other things, that is hopefully a way to limit your fertilizer. We see a shift away from fertilizer more when the price of fertilizer goes up than when the pressure from an environmental perspective comes out. In 2011, when energy prices were really high, there was a shift to organic. There was a lot of conversations about, how do I reduce my fertilizer costs? And then in the years since then, as energy costs have gone down, there's more of an environmental discussion. But if energy costs go up again, I would expect that if you have a diversified farm and if you are taking care of your soil or if you're enriching your soil, that you will need less fertilizer. And hopefully that is an advantage for you.
1: Yes. And in the past, haven't we had a colleague on talking about biostimulants and how as we continue learning about the natural world and employ some of these microorganisms in our production systems, they make that soil environment more efficient. And one of the easiest ways for us to rationalize using these microbes is that we then use less fertilizer. So to your point, and that's important. Let me tie in, you brought in fertilizer, which is excellent. Let's go back to drip irrigation or automated irrigation systems. When we water a plant, in a pot by hand, the old rule of thumb is to apply enough volume of solution so that we get 20% leaching through the pot. And that's just fertilizer solution that's draining off to the floor and into the groundwater. And the reasoning behind that was to flush out excess soluble salt so we wouldn't have a salt buildup in the uh, root zone. With our drip irrigation systems, we're applying drip, drip, drip instead of a whole waterfall through a hose. So a magnitude more efficient, at least in that we can apply much less fertilizer solution, So we save there. So there are secondary benefits that come from installing automated irrigation systems. In my opinion, you can never install enough or spend enough in your irrigation system around the greenhouse. And you've heard me say in the past that when you're installing drip irrigation, you can never have too many zones. So put plenty of zones in. You can always schedule two zones to operate identically, but If you then next season have two different crops on those two zones, at least it's independent. And you you made a really good point about Looking at the crop offerings, that instead of twenty different crops on the twenty benches, let's have ten crops of two benches. And one way that I describe those, Michelle, is if the grower needs to go through the economics and the profitability analysis. And and I've I refer to crops in three categories: makers, which are profitable; takers, which are losses; and tweeners. So as I will analyze crop by crop, my product mix, I end up with makers rising to the top. Takers are those that I should consider uh, getting rid of unless it happens to be a lost leader that I can't do without. And then tweeners always need to understand what the profit margin is on these different crops. So you can see really easily if if a grower is going through these exercises season to season, he or she should have an easy time making decisions. You, You just look at the takers and say, can I do without that? Can I do without that? I could use another bench or two of one of these maker crops, but I don't want to do the whole greenhouse in makers because that goes back 20 minutes to what you and I are talking about. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So you made a really good point that it, it might be a nice opportunity to streamline production a little bit. But the other part of being a small grower is not only that agility and ability to change quickly, but also our dedication to try and avoid monoculture and have a product mix. Again, you could use the, the illustration of uh, diversification and having more than one crop to sell.
0: I think those are all really good solutions or food for thought for growers as they are looking at these higher prices. I do want to switch to the second half which is how can this current situation be an opportunity? We are hopeful that it is not a huge liability because growers are able to adapt. But how can we turn a bad situation into a good one? And I think the opportunity here is in price differentials. So conventional products, the products you see in the grocery store are going to go up in price. And if you are a small grower, your cost is going to be higher. I think that there's an opportunity here because the differential between a grocery store product and a small grower product might be shrinking right now because prices are going up. And so just to use even numbers, if a tomato in a grocery store costs a dollar and a tomato from your farm costs $2, that's a big differential and it's, it's difficult to attract new customers. But right now, because of all of this, transportation costs and labor costs. The tomato that is in the grocery store now costs $1.50. If you are able to keep your costs down and you can keep your tomato at $2, that difference is a lot smaller and people are for the technical term, purchasing on the margin. They are looking at the price difference between you and the next best alternative. Right this minute, there's an opportunity for that differential to be smaller. So you have an opportunity to get new customers. They might not have been able to pay a dollar difference or been interested in paying a dollar difference, but they are willing to pay 50 cents. And now that you have that customer Is it possible to keep them even when the price increases? And so we again see this with organics. When there is a four or five dollar bushel difference in organic corn, there are a lot of people that want to enter the organic market and get that premium but when the premiums only a dollar or two on the supply side it's not enough incentive to draw them in. So if growers are able to keep the increase manageable and everybody else's prices go up, consumers are more willing to buy from smaller growers and that could be a really big opportunity to hook more customers and keep them in the future.
1: I love that description of the price differential, Michelle, and it brings to mind the reason that we closed down our garden center operation. And I think I'm fitting right into your definition. The way I've described it is I could always set my prices higher than the big box stores, but in the end, I couldn't raise them high enough to stay in business. So I think what I experienced is what you're describing. I couldn't make it big enough to stay in business. Am I describing this in a way that applies to what you're saying?
0: Yes. So you knew that the big box stores would be an anchor price. You knew that people expected to pay X and that there are some subset that would be able to pay X plus 10%. And so you could charge X plus 10%. And for most of the time, that was not enough that made this business viable to you. So if the X goes up now, you as your garden center would have been able to either charge a price that was viable to your business or you could have kept your price at that 10 percent mark and attracted even more customers. So absolutely, from your side, that's aligned perfectly.
1: Let me jump on what you're saying about the price differential and the tomato in the grocery store. What I'm hearing from you when you were describing that, I'm saying to myself, well, I want the grocery store price to stay high. Let it stay there because then it might be easier for me to to maintain my high price differential as long as I can, as you said five minutes ago, control my costs and keep the costs there. So am I thinking of it as an economist?
0: You are thinking of it as the way you described in the, the garden center, right? If the, if the price in the big box store goes up and I'm only allowed to charge a certain amount over it, if their price stays high, suddenly my price is acceptable. So I definitely think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece goes to what Dr. Behe mentioned in that we aren't selling enough of the attributes. So we are not able to explain why a farm-fresh tomato is a dollar more than the grocery store tomato. But if the differential is only 50 cents, we only have to convince that buyer of a 50 cents premium. And when you have a fresh tomato, I think that there are lots of places where growers would say that you're getting more than 50 cents of benefit. The seller has to explain why the tomato is worth a dollar more, that is really hard to do. Dr. Behe showed us a lot of places where we are getting more value, whether it's better taste, better quality, better you know, shelf life. We are getting all of these benefits. To most people, those are not worth a dollar. They might be worth 50 cents. Once they try it for 50 cents, maybe they really are getting a dollar worth of value and that spread can increase and you will still keep them. So I think it's both things. One, it does give growers more room to operate because the base price everybody is charging is higher. And two, it gives an easier entry point for consumers because it is more affordable looking and it is a lower threshold to jump over on why this is a better product.
1: I like That reasoning and absolutely what Bridget Behe discussed with us. That's one of these things the marketing and educating consumers and telling them what these attributes are. That never ends. And we're not doing a good enough job with it today, never mind tomorrow. So we need to catch up. And I think that's what her message was to us. We, We need to do a much better job at educating growers. Now, a method to our madness, Michelle, I want to tie this together. You spent time in the episode one of this sequence talking about inflation, defining it, explaining it a little bit. And a moment ago, we talked about, I might want as a grower for the grocery store prices to stay high so that I might be able to capitalize on that. But now tie things together. If the grocery store price is high because of inflation, are we just spinning our wheels in this conversation? Because inflation is probably affecting me as well. So is this like a moot point? And it's it's like, You may think you're doing better, but you're actually just treading water.
0: Yes, that is a big concern. This could be an opportunity is based on you being able to keep your costs down and or not rise as quickly as the grocery store. I understand that if the price of energy and fertilizer and transportation goes up those are also going to go up for small growers and they might not have tools like hedging or buying to be able to fight that as well as big growers so that's definitely a concern there just tends to be this moment where you can shift faster Can you either shift faster so that you're able to get some market share before all the prices go back to the way they were? Or maybe your costs aren't exactly the same. If fuel is really expensive and we're used to trucking things across the country, are you able to work with a local distributor that you only have to drive 50 miles? Suddenly, that cost of transportation is high enough that there's a price advantage to buying locally. So we would call those trade costs. So there's the cost of production and then there's the cost of getting the product to market. With some of the fuel costs, are they in the transportation and therefore might not affect you as much? That's sort of the problem with inflation, right? The problem with inflation is everything gets a little bit more expensive and over time we expect things to be more expensive because of inflation. And one of the places that inflation comes out the most is with wages, where if you have to pay workers more because there's market pressure to pay more for workers, now all of your workers make a lot more money, which means they have a lot more money to buy goods, which means the cost of the goods go up because you need a lot more of them. And to encourage supply, the price has to go up. And so now everybody's gotten a raise, but the cost of living has gone up. So what is the value of the raise when you end up in the same place?
1: This topic of inflation for those of us who are not economists, but for a topic to be that dry yet to have such an effect on our lives, either in our businesses or our daily lives as consumers, it's worth spending time talking about inflation. And I think I'll make my final comment, Michelle. I mentioned a moment ago that fixed costs, and we talked about heating and energy, and I was going to uh, reference uh, variable costs. So I'm going to use one example as a, a response to anticipated rise in energy costs. And I'll stick with the greenhouse example. So any grower who is starting his or her own plants by either sowing seeds and germinating them or bringing in unrooted cuttings and rooting them on site. This might be the season where they look at shifting over and buying in those young plants rather than growing them on site, because then they might be able to delay opening or firing up the greenhouse for a month. And then taking that, stretching it a bit further, there's a whole area of our industry we define as pre-finished products. So that might be a step beyond, and it might be a grower buying in a fully transplanted crop at a young stage, and instead of growing it from a seedling plug in the greenhouse than spending six weeks on your bench. You might buy it in instead of as a seedling plug already transplanted in a bedding plant flat or in a four inch pot and only require four weeks of finishing time. So there are ways that our industry can adapt. Now, will the supply of these plugs be such that you can make adjustments on the fly? Or is the supply then going to tighten up because many growers are going to be thinking about buying in plugs instead of sowing their own seeds? So so it still is, are we chasing our tail? But the answer is, as soon as you decide what you want to grow, lock in some of these inputs so that you know they're going to be there for you.
0: And I guess my final thought would be a very popular saying in economics, which is that the cure for high prices is high prices. When the price is high, it is an incentive to producers to produce more, and it is an incentive to consumers to consume less. So if the price of fuel is high... You are going to start your greenhouse a few weeks later, which is going to reduce demand. And there's going to be a lot of people in the energy sector that want to sell more. So they are going to increase their supply. At some point, there's going to be more supply than demand and the price is going to fall. And at that point, the incentive has gone. So producers are going to leave the market. The price is going to be low. So consumers are going to jump into the market and you're going to fall off that bottom, and the price is going to go back up. And so it goes along with the idea of this too shall pass. When we are in a situation of rising prices, it feels like there is never going to be a peak, and yet eventually more supply will be brought online, and demand will be cut and that price will peak and come back down and we'll start the cycle all over again. So whether it's energy or the plants in your business, the cure for high prices is high prices.
1: I have never heard that before. I love it. Thank you for sharing it. And you know, you, you brought back that story from me as a teenager when my, my father gave my older brother and, and me a field and said, What do you want to grow? So we grew cabbage and we hit the market right and made a ton of money that summer. And then at the end of the season, my father said, what do you boys want to grow there next year? And both my brother and I said, cabbage, of course. And he said, no, you can grow anything but cabbage because everybody else is going to grow cabbage next year because this year's price was high. It was my first experience with supply and demand. But now you've broadened my horizon a little bit. The remedy for high prices is high prices. Is that how you said? What did you say?
0: yeah the cure for high prices is high prices
1: all right well thank you partner that was really informative for me